1973, choreographer and director Bob Fosse became one of the few artists to win the three major awards in show business within the same year. It was that year Fosse won an Academy Award for his direction of the film Cabaret, a Tony for his direction of the musical Pippin, and three Emmy Awards for directing the live concert television special Liza with a Z. Over the span of his career, Bob Fosse would win eight Tonys, more than any other, and some might argue, as Balanchine was to ballet, Bob Fosse was to Broadway dance, in that he invented a signature dance language that has since been fully adopted into the vernacular. Fosse also received four Oscar nominations, winning once for Cabaret, and like his choreography for the stage, he developed a unique language in making films. It was around the same time, in the early 1970s, that Fosse began to work regularly in the local film scene, collaborating with New York's top film professionals. Ralph said to me one day, you know, there's real time and there's flash forwards and there's flashbacks and then there's Fosse time. And we sort of worked in Fosse time and I, I found it thrilling. I'm your host, Isabel Sederni, and in this episode of Frame by Frame, you'll meet the collaborators of Bob Fosse, including ADR supervisor Mel Zelnicker, picture editor Alan Heim, sound editor Dan Sable, and re-recording mixer Lee Dichter. Frame by Frame is presented by Post New York Alliance because it's how you finish that counts. You can share this conversation through our website, postnewyork.org slash frame by frame, or via Twitter at at postny. Allenheim started things off by sharing the story of how he first met Fosse in 1972 at Broadway Arts, a theater near Times Square. Allenheim's additional credits include work with director Sidney Lumet, George Roy Hill, Robert Benton, and Milos Forman. A guy named Kenny Ott, a producer that I had worked with on Godspell and television shows when I was a sound editor, he called me and asked me if I would like to meet with Fosse. Cabaret, the movie, had just opened, but I hadn't seen it yet. And I was asked to come down to Broadway Arts, the rehearsal studio that Bob replicated for all that jazz. And I went there around well, a little after lunch, and the dancers were coming back from their break. Five, six, seven, eight, and, and Fosse interviewed me in the middle of the room. We were both standing up. And the room is remarkably small. so. It's really quite crowded and sweaty, and the dancers were coming to sliding stops at our feet, and I was dazzled by the energy in the room. Just the... I watched for a while, and, and Fosse is a perfectionist, and he worked really tightly with the dancers. And I just sensed that this was gonna be an interesting project, a good project. Meanwhile, we were talking, and Bob gave me his usual hostile interview, as it were. And I didn't know whether I'd get the job or not, but I really wanted it. And then I immediately left there and went to see Cabaret, and it was showing at the Ziegfeld. And after I saw Cabaret, I just was desperate to work with him. <laughs> so the next morning I was called, and I got the job. So we did Eliza with a Z which was recorded live at the Lyric Theater, I think, a beautiful little Broadway theater, which had been vacant for quite a while. A lot of Broadway theaters were vacant at that time. Ladies and gentlemen, Liza Minnelli. That was a complex show to do because there were nine 16-millimeter cameras. 
and then three more. The next day, Bob pulled out the first row of seats in the theater so he could get some tracking shots and put a dolly track in below the stage. And Bob loved low-angle shots. So you've got nine cameras shooting for an hour, and then three more, maybe 11, 12 hours of film, and we lost one of the master cameras, the balcony camera, for the whole first act. The cameraman couldn't hear that the film was jammed in the camera because the music in the hall, I guess. So we had to work around that. Now listen, it's Liza with a Z, not Lisa with an S, because Lisa with an S goes snot. It's Z instead of S, line instead of Lee. Simple as can be, see Liza. I'll do it again. It's Liza We were working with a Z, at 1600 Broadway of Blessed S, Memory, and Bob at the time was a really heavy smoker, and he had an awful smoker's cough. When the elevator door opened, you could hear Bob's cough. It was about a half a block away, oh. that building. It was a long, narrow hallway, and I always felt very worried about him. A lot of people worried about Bob. One day, when Bob wasn't around, Herbie, the head waiter, the maitre d', as it were, of the Carnegie Deli, Bob and Chayefsky and Herb Gardner all had offices above the Carnegie Deli. Maybe even Doctorow did, E.O. Doctorow, though I'm not sure. He was part of that gang. And anyway, Herbie would show up, and he had an enormous turkey leg and a piece of pie. And he said, how's Bobby? Has, has Bobby been eating? And I said, no, you know, he eats his usual pastrami on white bread with mayonnaise. And it used to drive Patty crazy that Bob ate pastrami on white bread with mayonnaise and lettuce. It just didn't seem the right thing to do for a deli. But Bob was a Midwesterner, and he had Midwestern tastes. And uh, he said, well, tell him I made this. And uh, I made the pie, the turkeys from the deli. You know, make sure he eats it. So, you know, I did what I could. Thank you. Thank you for that. What, what do you mean? Well, because I'm a Midwesterner, but well, I've learned to eat. But you don't eat pastrami. No, and, I've learned no, to eat. No, you wouldn't Western. dream of doing yeah. that. That's sound editor Dan Sable, who worked with Bob Fosse on Star 80. Additional credits include sound editing for over 10 of Brian De Palma's films, including Carrie, Blowout, and The Untouchables, many of Woody Allen's seminal films, including Annie Hall and Manhattan, as well as films with directors Ang Lee, Barbie Schroeder, and Robert Benton. I was thinking, too, you know, of Bob and his smoking. Oh, yeah. Like he wore his glasses, you know, on a string, right, around his neck. And you'd see him, and his glasses were just filled with ashes. You know, when he'd smoke and the ashes would drop down, yeah. you know, on the lenses. But in all that jazz, you see him in the shower with a cigarette. Yeah. Uh, and that had happened. I didn't see that either. I heard about it. But Bob said it was absolutely true. So after we did Eliza Manoli's show, and that's the year Bob won the Academy Award for a Cabaret, uh, Tony for Pippin, and an Emmy for the Eliza Manoli show. After he Cabaret. won the three awards, he could have done anything. And what he wanted to do was a version of the play, Lenny. It was a, it was a well-received play, but, and nobody could figure out why he wanted to do it. Ladies and gentlemen, Lenny Bruce. Super Jew! It was during the editing phase of the film Lenny, Bob Fosse's biopic about the comedian Lenny Bruce. The picture editor Alan Heim and Fosse developed a non-linear editing structure that became a kind of Fosse film signature. The film carried themes of censorship and a hero's journey in the form of an iconoclast raging against a specific machine. 
It earned six Oscar nominations, including Best Picture and Best Director. It was also nominated for the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, where Valerie Perrine won the Best Actress Award. What happened is the script itself was a tremendously complex script. But Bob was very unhappy with Dustin's performance, that Dustin wasn't edgy enough, that that Dustin as Lenny Bruce was not edgy. And it came to me that if we fragmented Dustin's performance more than it was in the script, in other words, intersperse the incidents from the life, say, if you took a scene where Lenny is talking about marriage, and start intercutting that with Honey's life, and, and then Dustin talking her into doing the threesome. And the more we cut up Dustin's performance on stage, the more edge he had. So Bob said, you know, show me what you mean, and I did it. We started doing that with one scene, and he said, let's keep doing that. Ralph Burns who was Bob's composer and arranger on Broadway shows and on the movies we did, Ralph said to me one day, you know, there's real time and there's flash forwards and there's flashbacks and then there's Fosse time. And we sort of worked in Fosse time and I, I found it thrilling. There was a certain freedom in the cutting room. Alan, you were there for the, the very last scene in Lenny where you had a problem with a camera beeping low battery. And we got to loop the entire scene. That's ADR supervisor Mel Zelniker, who began working with Bob Fosse on Liza with a Z and continued as a collaborator with Fosse on the films Lenny, All That Jazz, and Star 80. Additional credits include Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather, Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver and Goodfellas, Sidney Lumet's Dog Day Afternoon and Network, the Coen Brothers' Blood Simple and Raising Arizona, and Brian De Palma's The Untouchables. He's doing a nightclub routine and he's basically having a mental breakdown while he's doing it. And the uh, production audio was ruined by a camera alarm, which just kept on beeping. I never quite understood why someone didn't say cut and let's start again when the camera's fixed. I mean, it was a ton of looping, an absolute ton. How, how long were you, how long, how many days, if you remember, or weeks were you looping that? It went on forever. <laughs> probably, probably a month, uh, maybe even a little bit longer. And I think Bob was a really considerate, sweet guy, except when it came to the dynamic with Dustin. At that point in time, towards the end particularly, and Bob was becoming very critical of Dustin's readings, and Dustin was having a hard time because it was very difficult to do, and he wasn't appreciating the direction that he was getting. And it descended into, look, without me, there would be no movie. What do you mean without me, there would be no movie? Me, I'm making this movie. It got into that, and it became physical. Uh, you don't like to see that kind of stuff. F- physical? Uh, they actually touched each other? Yes, they actually touched each other. And I, I forget who it was that broke it up. Wow. Uh, but it was it was unpleasant. And in all the years that I've spent behind the console, I've only seen two of those. You know, I won't bother mentioning the other, but the, the one with Fosse and Dustin Hoffman was very unpleasant. First place, they fought during the shoot. And after daily, I was out down there in Florida for the whole time. And I didn't go to the set very often, but yeah. Dustin was hot. The film could not have been made probably without him. The budget was very low. It was black and white for several reasons. I think 
the budget was part of it, but Bob also wanted a newsreel film. When we were shooting, there's one scene that Dustin absolutely insisted on redoing because he felt he was too nasty. And it was the scene where he said, are there any niggers in the room, any spicks? And then he walked around the room. Bob realized he had to give Dustin that day to reshoot. And it was a whole day that they had to reshoot the scene. And we were under a tight gun on the shoot. They kept cutting script pages. The budget was just getting squeezed. And when we looked at the dailies, we decided to go with the original one, the one where he was nastier. That's one of the reasons Dustin hated the performance. He, I believe Dustin got an Academy Award nomination for that, as did Valerie Perrine. I mean, at Lenny, we shot two cameras on, on the stage all the time. And sometimes uh, there'd be problems. And you know, the, the cameraman would want to flood the area with light, and Bob wanted to be very focused. A, a lot of Dustin's performance was covered by a spotlight, a follow spot, or a regular light that just one light lit him. And the f depth of field was not very great. So there'd be things that went in and out of focus. But again, like projectionist error, you, if the performance is good, you just use it. So, you know, that was our standard, the performance, really. He did what any good director does, which is plan and communicate. His communication was usually stop acting mm. to actors. He would say, just, just be natural, be yourself, stop acting. Mm. And uh, some actors like that, some don't, but they surely got information from him. And he got great performances out of people. Mm. Lenny is, is, a, I think, a really underappreciated movie. Uh, and there's been some uh, critical reappraisal of the film, and I've read some recent reviews that realize what it was. I think it was a very forward-looking movie. Fresh off the success of Lenny and having established a powerful artistic relationship with picture editor Alan Heim, it was natural that Bob Fosse and Alan Heim would work together on his next film, All That Jazz. Having spent most of his life in the world of Broadway dance and musical theater, Fosse opened the film with a representation of a Broadway dance cattle call shot in cinema verite style. Picture editor Alan Heim describes how the shape of the opening scene evolved. The scene has since become an iconic moment in world cinema. Well, I, I did a version of it that was uh, 12 minutes long, and it's about three and a half minutes now in the movie. And my version was like a, a little documentary on an open call. And then we just, you know, it was just too long, and we knew it, because it's not a movie about that. It's a movie about Roy Scheider and, and his character and, and the progress to death. There were hundreds of dancers on the stage, and it was really thrilling. It was one of the times that I wanted to go to the set uh, at the Palace Theater, and I walked under the stage, and you sound guys would have loved it, because the noise under the stage with 700 dancers moving around was spectacular. None of that is in the movie because it was all just done to playback track and it wasn't, there was no intention ever of putting sound effects in it. But it was just sort of a remarkable scene. So my version would have been a version of an open call and I wish I had a copy of it. I mean, if we had Avid's, I would, keep, I would have kept a copy. I didn't keep many things, but that's something I would have kept. 
when I did do all that jazz, I said to my uh, the guy who was going to be my assistant, David Ray, he came over one night, and I gave him the script, and we were talking, and I said, none of the shots are going to look exactly the way you, you envision them in your head, because Bob was always moving the camera just a little. It was always a little off. It was always a little lower than you expected it, a little higher, a little closer. Bob was a perfectionist. Everybody tried very hard to give him the best work that they could do. They tried very hard to, to realize his vision. On uh, all that jazz, the crew would try and get the next day's shot set up. They'd light everything and leave the camera in position, and Bob would show up early in the morning. He always showed up first thing on the set. He was one of the first people on the set. And he'd look through the viewfinder, which he always had around his neck, and, and look through the camera, and he'd always ask for it to be moved a, a foot or so in some other direction, which the crew was prepared for. They knew exactly how to move the lights quickly and get it ready. Because, you know, once you work with a guy a bit, you begin to learn what makes him comfortable. All That Jazz was a film that most recognized as a semi-autobiographical story of a drug-addicted, womanizing, workaholic, choreographer-director confronting his own death. In fact, Pauline Kael would later write in the New Yorker review of the film that actor Roy Scheider made you feel as if you were watching Fosse himself. It wasn't an impersonation. It was as if Fosse had taken over his body from the inside. All That Jazz won four Academy Awards, including one for Alan Heim. All That Jazz also won the Palme d'Or at the 1980 Cannes Film Festival. It was very close to the, to, to, to the bone, to Bob's life, but he didn't want to admit it. And, you know, it always was personal, but yeah. he wouldn't, he never admitted that it was him. So Even the, though the address on the dexedrine... It's almost was, his address. Yeah, it's close. It's almost, it wasn't his address. And a lot of people who actually worked on other stuff with Bob were the real people. Yeah. Me, the lighting designer, the rehearsal pianist, the musical director, Stanley Lebowski, the stage manager. And, you know, everybody uses their lives when they're telling a story in some way. But for some reason, Bob wanted to be very clear it was... I would say, this is the scene where you, and he would say, no, no, it's not me, it's Roy or it's Joe. It's not me. And he got kind of angry about that. It was a very intense movie. There was a delay at the beginning because uh, Bob wanted to hire Richard Dreyfus to play the Joe Gideon part. And the producer, Kenny Ott, said, bad idea. I said, bad idea. He said, no, Bob said, I, he can do it. He really wants to do it, and he can do it. I can, I can direct him to do it. So I showed up the first day. I usually started about two weeks early, which is about when they started rehearsals. I got out of the elevator, and a production manager named David Golden met me at the elevator. We were working in the DGA building at that time, and David said, we'd be interested in doing the movie I'm producing now, Robert Benton's film about divorce with Dustin. And I said, well, no. Uh, he pointed you know, down toward his cutting room, which is at the far end of the, on the left side, and I, my cutting room, rooms were on the right. 
And I said, no, I'm working over there. And uh, he said, don't be so sure, which was the first time I heard that Bob had fired Richard Dreyfus. So the crew is ready, and we don't have a lead. So they put us all on hiatus until they could get Roy Scheider. And Roy was a perfect choice. He was, And he was doing a film for a couple of friends of mine who were producing their first movie. And Sam Cohn, who was everybody's agent in New York at that time, Sam tried to get Roy off the film, and my friends who were producing it were incredibly disturbed by that, and I don't blame them. So we had a six-month hiatus, and they, it was maybe four months, and they put us on half pay. At least in my case, it was half pay. They wanted to keep the crew together, and Bob did. The original budget was $10 million, which is laughable today when you think about it. And we knew that the film couldn't be made for $10 million, but we figured we'd start anyway. An attitude that works sometimes. And about midway through, Columbia, who was producing it originally, they wanted to pull the plug on it. And uh, I had to get together a whole bunch of cutscenes and some of the best dailies and have them shipped out overnight on a Saturday night to California. And Dan Melnick, the producer, took the film around. I imagine like Willie Loman, there's Dustin again. Uh, Willie Loman and Death of a Salesman carrying two cases of film. And he went first to Warner Brothers, and they wanted a day to decide. This was Sunday. They wanted to make a decision Monday. And he then took it over to Alan Ladd Jr.'s house, and they screened it at Laddie's house, and Laddie wrote a check on the spot for the other half of the budget, and they broke up, you know, who foreign distribution, whatever. So we kept shooting and finishing the movie. But it was nerve-wracking at that point. Uh, but the whole film, they, you know, we were on half pay. The set dresser who won an Academy Award, he had a heart attack, but he came back to the production when he recovered. Bob broke the company for a week at Thanksgiving in order to choreograph the erotica number. And during that week, Robert Allen Arthur, his co-author and the producer of the film, died of pancreatic cancer, complete surprise. He had a pain in his back, went into the hospital. He was dead within a week. So the film was like life. People had babies. Chris Newman had a kid during that time. It was life. It was really tough. Because Bob didn't want to take a break when he finally did finish the shoot. It was a very long shoot. And you were getting dailies. Oh, yeah, we always watch dailies. No matter how late, we would watch dailies, pretty much. The Give camera crew, there was not a lot. Bob didn't communicate a lot in dailies. I mean, like on after. Lenny, we would ride back to the hotel together at night, and he never said a word to me in the car. He was just thinking about the movie, stewing, as it were. But in the cutting room, we, we talked a lot. We sort of understood what was going on, and uh, we just did it. And he, you know, he was in tremendous control. Everything in those movies comes out eventually to be what Bob wanted, whether we went out in a circular way or directly. Mm -hmm. But unlike Sidney Lumet, when I started working with him, Bob never said, do this, do that. We'd look at the dailies again before I started a scene, and we'd discuss it, and then he'd disappear for a while. And he'd come back, and we'd polish the scene. And we never moved on until we were happy with that particular scene, and we always cut in order, pretty much. So we didn't do, I didn't do a lot of cutting. I did some, but uh, not a lot of cutting while they were shooting. 
So there we were on all that jazz, and he came into the cutting room. He didn't take a break, most directors do. And he didn't take a break, and, and there was a tension building between us, which uh, we hadn't had on the two movies before. Oh, the day before, the day before, Bob had said to me that I was a much better editor before I had a kid, which was very painful for me. And I came home that night and said to my wife, I may have to quit this job, and I don't want to quit this job. I mean, I, I knew this was going to be a wonderful movie, and I really wanted to figure out a way to stay. So the next day when we came to my scene, which is not in the movie, and it was me and Roy, or Joe, or Bob, and I was supposed to raise my eyebrow because he was going to cough. He coughed and off camera, and I was supposed to just raise my eyebrow. You know, here he goes again, and, you know, I worry, show a little worry. Bob let the camera roll, which he often did, and he said, do another one smaller. And it was a big close-up of me. And I have big eyebrows. So each one, when I saw the dailies, I did five in a row. And when I saw the dailies, the fifth one was enormous. I looked like the villain in a Charlie Chaplin movie. It looked like I had caterpillars on my head. So I used the smallest one when I cut the scene. And Bob came in, he saw the scene. And he said, can I see the other takes on this? And I said, you're not going to like it. He said, show me the takes. And he was getting feisty. And he said, you know, he kicked the garbage can, which I never saw him do. I never saw any sign of anger with him. He kicked a small wastebasket across the room. And he said, how can I let you do that? And I said, Bob, I'm not an actor. And he said, yeah, I know you're not an actor, but you're a human being, and I should be able to get a better performance out of a human being. And I said, you know, Bob, that's the nicest thing you've said to me in the two weeks we've been in the cutting room. And he broke up. And... It just relieved the tension. And after that, it never happened again. Nothing like that ever happened again. We went back to a nice, smooth relationship. Because it was not, not going to be tenable. Uh, I didn't want to be abused. I never liked to be abused. And I, I've been editing a long time. And working with Bob was one of the times I really appreciated the job. I always liked it. I loved it. But working with Bob, there was just this symbiotic relationship. I mean, we, we thought the same way. You know, it was, it was for me uh, a seminal moment, as it were, in my career. Near the end, in fact, when we were doing the final number, my mother died. Mm. And I had to take a break and go out to Brooklyn and hang with my dad for about a week. And I told Bob that I was going to be doing this. And... He had been sober for a while, and I think he fell off the wagon because we were it was really intense, the death musical number. So when I came back, Bob wasn't available. He had to clean up again a little bit. I mean, you know, we both lost our rhythm, and, we, and I went back into it feeling very different about death than I had before. Bob, who, who spent a lot of years in psychiatry, and he and, and Gwen Verdon were big donors to the New York Psychoanalytical Institute, and he always was fascinated with death. So he knew Kubler-Ross very well. I mean, her work. I mean, he was a very complex guy. That's why his films are so interesting. 
Around the same time as the success of All That Jazz played out around the world, Fosse read a Village Voice article recounting the murder of the Playboy playmate Dorothy Stratton by her estranged husband that would serve as the basis for his next and final film, Star 80. It was considered stylish, sexy, but also brutal, carrying the structural elements and editing style now typical of a Fosse film, but also carrying extremely dark content. Allenheim talked about how he first got involved with the film. Well, he showed me the article, and then he went off and wrote the script. I think he wrote the script himself. He wanted to do it, and he got the financing for it, and uh, you know, next thing I knew, I was in Vancouver. And they finished shooting um, in Los Angeles, which was, never made Bob happy. He really didn't like that town. It was Alan Heim who suggested sound editor Dan Sable and re-recording mixer Lee Dichter to Bob Fosse both of whom became collaborators on Star 80. Lee Dichter's work as re-recording mixer includes over 300 credits spanning 50 years and work with directors such as David and Albert Mazels, Woody Allen, Ken Burns, Sidney Lumet, Alan Pakula, Francis Ford Coppola, Brian De Palma, Mike Nichols, the Coen brothers, and Robert Altman. Here Lee describes details from a mix session he had with Bob Fosse for the film Star 80. I just remember one advantage, his professionalism, she talked about, and his exactness, and his, like, so in tune with, with sound. And Dan can back this up, I mean, I remember the, the first time that uh, this still camera took a shot of Dorothy, we went through it, we mixed it, and he said, no, back that up, please. And we played it, and he said, he turned to Dan, he said, Dan, how'd you get that sound of the camera? How many elements are there that make it up? He said, it was about three of them. Three or four, maybe four or five, I'm not even sure, but it was multiple sound effects to make the one sound of the shutter going zip, the beginning, the middle. So he said, can I hear them one at a time? Isolate the four sounds or whatever it was, I think it was four. Uh, and we played them and then we, we added two together and the three or four. He said, that's great, but can you move the third one, one frame, one frame? He said, move it. Oh, no, that's too much. Can you move it a half a frame? He says, okay, play the sound effect again, and you hear all four sounds together. He says, can you split that half a frame? Is it possible? <laughs> so we call the back room. Can you move it, move that uh, track three one perf? And that's what we got. He said, every time now that we do the shutter in the movie, which must have been, I don't know, a hundred of them, he said, that's, that's what I want to hear, that third one, move it in one, one perf, move it one perf. Because this plays into when you walk, you walk in and move, move the camera two feet to the left, one foot to the right. Thank you, you know. Yeah, he did. He had yeah. a great ear. Oh, he really did. Yeah. But the most important thing, I think, it wasn't the sound effects. It was the music. The music yeah. was such a major part of that movie, and so much time was spent on it. And the music editor was very busy. He was constantly making adjustments. Uh, he did all, he did, Mike Tronic, yeah, he did all that jazz. But that was the... Uh, I think that most of the effort on that film was spent on music. And there was a lot of it. I don't think that we spotted the film. It's like Robert Benton. I was supposed to speak to him, you know, about the sound in the, in the film. So he was going to give me some wise, sage advice and all that. And what he said was, sound is very important in this film. And that was it. And basically, uh, that's the way all of them think, you know, because they don't know they don't know what to do. So you fill in the stuff that you know, 
has got to be there. The footsteps, the backgrounds, the birds, the, all, all, all that stuff. Stuff that they never even thought about, you know. And then there may be an occasional special effects yeah. sequence. But that's the way that it was on this movie. Yeah, we, you and I probably screened the film together before you started. I think we probably but did. Bob yeah. basically didn't ask for anything special. As you say, it, it, you know, it, it's in front of you. Right. The whole concept of sound design sometimes gets a little overwrought, I think. Sound effects are what they are. I mean, you see the screen. When I was a sound effects editor, you know, if somebody picks up a telephone, you put in a telephone ring just before. And somebody knocks on the door. And, you know, somebody goes to open the door. You put a doorbell or a knock or whatever it is, depending on the scene. Beyond that, it gets just overwrought. Yeah. You know, it's like Woody Allen in Annie Hall. There's a scene in the film where someone says, that goddamn siren, I can't sleep. So what did I do? I put a siren in right. outside. And when Woody heard it, he said, hey, that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so basically, that's how it works. Yeah. There are certain sounds that, you know, that had to be very special, like the gunshots. Oh, we spent a lot of time on the gunshots. Yeah. It turned out great. There are only two of them, right? One, one for her and one for him. Yeah, but we spent a lot of time on it. And then oh, yeah. the I music of tubular bells playing, yeah. leading into yeah. that, was pretty astounding. He, he was just so focused. Just completely focused well, on everything. Kenny Ott, the producer, and myself, they left that scene for the last thing to shoot. Usually you shoot a schedule that you make up to save money and get the actors in the same place at the same time. Nobody wanted to shoot that scene. Nobody wanted to shoot the, the uh, killing of, of Dorothy Stratton and his suicide, except Bob. And he spent a lot of time on the set with the blood, I mean, he, he actually was very involved in placing the blood on the walls. And Kenny and I kept saying, don't have him try and rape her three times. It's too much. And Bob did it. And then after we cut it, he said, you know, maybe it's too much. Let's see if we can cut one of them out. And because of the way the film was structured and shot, we couldn't do it. Again, that was a situation where he acknowledged that he had gone too far. But he also got a lot of pleasure out of part of it. And I think the gunshot, all of that, it had to be perfect. Well, actually, everything we did for Bob had to be perfect. On Star 80, we had, there was one scene that was particularly troublesome, and we left it. We didn't usually do that, but we left this scene. And six months later, I, we spent a lot of time in the cutting room, and several months later, Bob came in, and he said, you know that scene, why don't you try this? And I did what he suggested, and it worked very well. And he said, so what do you think? And I said, I like it. It solves the problem. And he said, yeah, it's good you like it, because six months ago you suggested it, and I said it was no good. And, you know, a thing like that, he remembered, and, and he um, appreciated the work, and it did solve the problem, which is really what a lot of things that editors do is solving problems, just telling a story, 
keeping the people on the edge of their seats. I asked Alan to talk about the major challenges in structuring Star 80. The major changes had to do with uh, Mariel Hemingway's performance. But in the movie, I don't think you can really tell. I mean, we protected her performance a great deal. You know, Eric Roberts was superb. On occasion, we run into each other, and I, I've told people that I used to run into him in the elevator up in Vancouver, and he wouldn't say good morning. I mean, he was in that character. He was always that character. So, you know, he was great. Part of the problem was that there were live people involved, and I know that they were prepared for uh, a lawsuit from the mother, from Dorothy Stratton's mother, maybe from as a, a surrogate for her sister, the young mm -hmm. girl in it. And we were very careful about the Peter Bogdanovich character. And Hugh Hefner. We, we, I mean, we had permission from Hugh Hefner to do stuff, but, and I don't remember that he actually had approval. But, you know, Cliff Robertson played it, and, and he's a very likable guy. And again, we softened the edges of some of the characters. They still come over, if you look at it carefully, as a, you know, it's a pretty vicious attack on Hollywood. And I guess, I know the people in Hollywood would, did not take it well. Eric should have gotten an Academy Award nomination for that movie and, and didn't mm. because it was not well received. It was, Bob was very depressed after that. He, he went to ground at his new house in Quag, basically not reachable for a little while. I don't know if you ever heard this, but people say to me, if that film wasn't so well done, technically, mm -hmm. uh, it was unwatchable. It was really mm -hmm. so difficult in the subject. In it was. It was really tough. Yeah. Yeah. I keep thinking of a line, in, you know, in Star 80, when Eric says, uh, she calls it a film for Christ's sake. Yeah. And ever since then, I haven't known what to call it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, I find it difficult, having worked on a lot of bad movies and some good ones, to talk about a vision. The stuff Bob choreographed really became a part of the Broadway technique over a period of time. I mean, and now it's standard uh, stuff in choreography everywhere. It's almost like, call it a film, for God's sakes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, Sometimes it seems a little pretentious, but in Bob's case, I don't think it was. I mean, there really was a, a creative force uh, behind everything he did. This episode was recorded by Chris White at Technicolor Postworks, New York. Producer and editor was myself, Isabel Sederni. Special thanks to Ben Baker and support from Post New York Alliance. Music credits include Magic To Do from Stephen Schwartz's score for the Broadway stage musical Pippin, excerpts from the soundtrack from the live musical concert Liza With A Z, George Benson's On Broadway and Vivaldi's concert in G from the soundtrack of All That Jazz. We welcome your suggestions and comments. Write us at framebyframe at postnewyork.org. Follow us on Instagram at fxfpost. Stay tuned for the next episode of Frame by Frame featuring the editors of the Peabody, Emmy, and Eddie Award-winning documentary on Charlottesville from Vice News. Oh, yeah. And a Generation Next interview with picture editor Wyatt Smith 
and director Casey Lemons about the upcoming biopic, Harriet, based on the life of the famous abolitionist and warrior, Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman.